This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Don't forget to tap or click subscribe to get regular episodes every Thursday. Now, every October, Black History Month celebrates the many achievements of Black Britons throughout the centuries. But it also encourages us to look at Britain's dominant role in transatlantic slavery and to understand the legacies of that trade that still shape our world today. Joining us to discuss this is Professor of History and Memory of Slavery at the University of Bristol, Olivette Otelle. Olivette, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, first of all, when did the transatlantic slave trade start and what created the circumstances under which it was allowed to gain momentum? Oh, the circumstances were very turbulent. Let's just go back to 1492. You have Columbus arriving in uh, what would be nowadays the Bahamas. You have um, several Europeans managing to get rid of the Moors' occupation of Europe and then fighting amongst themselves for power in Europe. And then, so you have the Spanish, the Portuguese really, really leading that kind of fight. And you have, for example, 1526, the Portuguese started really trying to find ways to find gold. So that's more or less the context. They were looking for gold. Right. And is it, was it more of a, a Spanish and Portuguese exploits at first before Britain got involved? Yes, absolutely. They were the precursor, really. They decided to explore the Americas. Well, they wanted to go to India and then they, through Columbus, they find North America and the, the rest of, of the continent. They wanted to explore the globe, looking for riches. And the Americas in particular provided them with opportunities. What they found there is indigenous population and those populations started to be put to work. They started to die quite rapidly and dramatically. And at the same time, they were also traveling or sailing along uh, African coast and uh, they came into contact with several population. And that's where they started to explore perhaps the idea of sugar plantations in Sao Tome, in the Canary Islands and so on. What sort of year are we talking about when Britain starts to get involved in this slave trade? Well, not far long after the Portuguese and the Spanish, because they started in 1555. And then the following year and, and the, another following year, you have two main people that we know about, John Locke and William Towson, both were captains who went to a West African coast and acquired captives. And they brought some of those captives to England, really. So who's on the throne at this point? Well, at this point, we're heading towards Elizabeth. And it's very important to talk about that because the person who really introduces Britain to the slave trade in 1552 is John Hawkins. And several of John Hawkins' voyages will be funded by Elizabeth I. She provided supplies, provided vessels and all sort of goods. So she believed in, in his exploration and supported and protected him. So he was a privateer, if you would, supported by the Crown. As we've covered in a previous episode, there are different names for these pirates. Uh, they're either privateers, buccaneers or out-and-out pirates. Um, yeah. Yes. How are the slave trade and the emergence of Britain as this major colonial power linked. Obviously that develops in the hundreds of years after the 1550s, but um, 
Well, it really is a combination of things because whilst they were acquiring enslaved African captives, they were also exploring the idea of colonies and colonization and occupation of uh, several islands in the Americas. So they managed to get a few islands and, you know, they fought against the Portuguese and Spanish to acquire them. And then they were following the footsteps of those two empires and those two kingdoms by transporting those African captives to work in those plantations. So it's a combination of just not just acquiring, but also putting these people to work. And then the goods produced by these people being sold in the rest of Europe and in England in particular. What was Britain's primary role then in the slave trade? Ah, it depends really on the period. If we're talking about the early days, it was mainly the transport of African captives and the supply to British, or English rather, colonists. But by the 18th century, things have changed. So you see, after the, the, um, the Spanish War of Succession, that ended in 1714, you have Britain being granted the exclusive right to provide African captives to Spanish colonists. That was the term of the, uh, the peace agreement, if you would. So that was a huge contract. 4,800 enslaved people that they had to provide to Spanish crown and Spanish colonists each year. So that just put Britain at a different level in terms of the slave trade. But that also meant that Britain should provide for the Spanish, but for themselves. So you had different traders fiercely getting involved into that trade because it was a very, it became a very lucrative trade. So it's really about gaining economic advantage over your competitors in the market for these various commodities, whether it's gold or sugar or tobacco, coffee. Yes, it was a fight for power and money, money talked and wealth talked. So whoever had that access or had dominated that trade could possibly dominate the rest of Europe. It's pretty easy to forget that there were individuals in Britain behind this slave trade. You've just mentioned Queen Elizabeth I being, I suppose, an architect of this in a way. And there were others driving it as well, making money out of it. What kind of people were they? Do we know who some of them were? Yes, we have a few names. And and these people were very proud of their trade and how they succeeded. So they left diaries, they left all sorts of notes. We have a few people, Peter Tellison, who lived in in Broadsworth Hall in South Yorkshire, Mm -hmm. made a fortune through slavery. In Bristol, you have Edward Colston, whose statues had been toppled recently. You have the Pinney family, the Goldney family. You had many people, many, many families and, and traders. And bearing in mind that those traders invested in, in vessels, but also had plantations in the Caribbean, not all of them, but they had plantations in the Caribbean. So it was really a, a kind of a, a, a triangular, if you would, circle of wealth where the goods came back from the Americas, they also had shares into that business as well. What aspects of life in Britain did the slave trade have a direct influence on? Would the quality of life for people at home have improved, whereas obviously for those working these plantations in the terrible heat and awful conditions, I guess they they were in an awful situation, but how was the contrast? Well, there's, there's a whole debate about it. Many people talked about chimney sweepers in the 18th century whose lives was, of course, terrible. But that trade also gave way to new trade and new businesses and new jobs. For example, rope makers 
were very popular because you use that aboard slave ships. You have jobs like sugar boilers. Sugar boilers became an honorable trade. You have to go through an apprenticeship and it was very important. So it, overall, Britain really benefited from that. So some people talk about the ripple effect of wealth. I talk about a virtual circle of wealth in economic sense, of course, horrible in terms of morals and ethics. And that came at, at a human uh, dire human cost. Mm. Uh, but Britain benefited from that trade immensely. So what you're saying is there are all these other ancillary jobs and employments that was popping up as a result of the slave trade? Absolutely. From top to bottom and, and, and so on. Yeah. In essence, most of the country was in some way to blame. It's all part of the problem. Well, most of the country had access to that wealth, be it as workers, but also as consumers. The use of sugar became, quote unquote, democratized because it was at the start of 17th century. In the 17th century, it preserved the elite. In the 18th century, everyone had access to tea, coffee, sugar, especially sugar, rum. You know, all these goods were making the economy work because they were consumers. How did the economy improve then in Britain as a result of all this exploitation that's, that's taking place you know, across the world? Dramatically, the economy improved dramatically because the better things were for the British people, the more investment were put into that trade. It also meant that the more complicated you have in terms of the banking system, insurance system, and all sort of financial trade and financial investment. It also meant that that money was put to use in various other areas, really. Improvement of infrastructure, roads and all sort of things for the British people. And obviously, um, I think the stock market also did fairly well as a result, uh, as we've covered in a previous episode with the South Sea Company. Yes, the South Sea Company did well until, of course, as you know, uh, 1720s. But that was an opportunity for traders from the rest of the country, in particular Bristol, Liverpool, and a small port as well, where merchants were itching to have a, a piece of that of that trade. So they were able, because of the demise of the South Sea Company, to invest in other businesses or to invest in particular in, in the slave trade and slave economy. And of course, if you have missed that episode about the South Sea Company, then it's, it's worth a listen just to get a sense of the stock market crash of that period. The main beneficiaries of the slave trade then, who are they? Ah, the main beneficiaries are, of course, the investors. They invested some money into this and they were paid sometimes 10 timefold. So you have traders, you have businessmen, if you would. You have uh, known as merchant, essentially, at the time. That would be middle, upper middle class, if you would. You also have the crown from the very start that invested in that trade. You have the church. And at the bottom, you have sailors, but sailors were really the least beneficiaries of the whole trade because a lot of them ended up you know, in the Caribbean and with a mortality rate aboard slave ship. Many of them came back disabled, blind, and, and etc. So the trade benefited in some ways some of them, those who invested later on in the Caribbean, but for those who came back home penniless, it was pretty much dire. What are we talking about in terms of the peak of the slave trade, would you say? If it has a heyday, what period is that? Definitely the 1780s. 
Interestingly enough, it was also the time where you have uh, the abolitionist movement brewing, but the 1780s are the peak for Britain. Uh, well, it depends again on what we're talking about, because for, for Bristol, that would be 1730-ish. For Liverpool, after uh, 1745. So, yeah, let's just put it at 1780s. And how significant was Britain's involvement in the slave trade compared to other countries. Earlier on, we were talking about how the Spanish and the Portuguese were involved. But did Britain take over eventually? Take over, not in terms of the number of captives transported, because Britain roughly transported three millions. The Portuguese nearly the double of that, and the Spanish as well. So you have the Spanish, the Portuguese, the Dutch, and uh, perhaps fourth place would be Britain, followed by the US and France. And then you have the rest of Europe, you know, Denmark, Sweden, Brandenburg, etc. Were there any countries in Europe or the Western world that weren't really involved in the slave trade? Or was it really a worldwide problem? That's interesting because, no, they weren't because you find Eastern Europeans being involved through Brandenburg. That would be nowadays Germany and Prussia. You have the Nordic countries completely involved. You know, there were no countries, at least European countries, that were not involved. You touched on the abolitionist movement just now. How long did it take for an anti-slavery movement to gain momentum? It took quite a while because the earliest abolitionists are in the uh, 1720s already. The earliest that we that were the most vocal. Of course, before that, right from the start, when Britain was involved in the slave trade, you, you always had voices, but those voices were really minor voices. It's in the 1780s again. 1787, for example, you have the Society for the Abolition of Slavery that was set up. And they did an incredible work of raising awareness touring the country. And, you know, while they were doing that outside, you had uh, the discussion going on in Parliament with William Wilberforce leading that side of the question and really, really trying to engage and in, in dialogue with parliamentarian. Because most of them were also, tra- well, most, no, but some of them were also traders and have invest- invested in the slave trade and, and had shared and plantations, really. Yes, and there was this conflict, I suppose, of interests, isn't there? Yes. You don't want to vote against something that is potentially making you money. Absolutely. So it was beginning to gain momentum. When did the slave trade in Britain officially end then and why? Well, officially we have uh, 1806 and then the, the bill and then the act came into force in 1807. You have multiple reasons. Some people have argued that it's because Britain was sufficiently or at least wealthy enough to think about other trades and to think about other source of income. But the reality was that the slave trade stopped, but uh, slavery continued. So the whole slave economy didn't stop there. Everything was pretty much the same. The only difference was that there were no new import of uh, African captives to the Caribbean. Ah, right. You're saying that the slaves continued to work on the plantations, etc., etc.? Yes, absolutely. Until, you know, the second wave, which was the abolition of slavery this time, 1833. And even that there, they had to work for a number of years for their their master before being granted freedom. So it took another campaign. And then in 1840, roughly, that, that's when you have people who can call themselves free from, from slavery, really. Mm. But it's another story because they were not completely free. But that's a different discussion, perhaps. 
Sure. Before all this built up, obviously there was a seed of a movement. What was that, really? Was it just the, the human aspect? It was a conjunction of things because it was also the time where people from all walks of life wanted access to rights, the right to vote, the rights for women to vote and to determine their own lives and to be in charge of their own lives. So you have the working class wanting to have access to certain benefits. The Chartist movement in the middle of the 19th century, you have, as I said, women's uh, fighting. They were particularly instrumental in this second uh, campaign for abolition of slavery. Women fighting for the rights of women and for the rights of the enslaved. And you also have people who were exploring other avenues. It was less, shall we say, humanistic in some ways because they were exploring colonization of Africa and, and saying that we've done the slave trade, we need to abolish it. And now we need to go after, well, African resources. And to do that, we will have to work with people who are not necessarily enslaved on the continent. So, yeah. Fast forwarding a bit, what evidence do we see of Britain's role in the slave trade today that we can see in England in terms of physical and societal legacies? Uh, we have many examples. We have, of course, the architecture, the way cities were designed. It, most of the time it came from money, from the money that uh, the city had acquired from the slave trade and slavery. I'm thinking again about Bristol. You have, so as I said, monuments. You have stately homes. You have statues, of course. You have train stations. You have bridges and tunnels. Many, many things, really. You've mentioned the many statues and buildings around the country. They're only just being recognised for their associations with slavery. Why do you think this has taken so long to happen and how important is it to acknowledge these connections? I think it took really a long time because the whole narrative was written by people who have benefited from the slave trade and slavery. In other words, those people who made a fortune through the slave economy also were the patrons of several institutions and therefore you know as patrons you recognize quite often in urban landscapes through statues so there was a narrative of victory of entrepreneurship of men who had nothing to start with and succeeded and so on so that had completely obscured the fact that they did it but at the cost at the human cost at the cost of the enslaved of, of at the cost of uh, pain and suffering from people of african descent so it, it took a long time because it, it's the way we were taught and the narrative was written for centuries. How important is it to acknowledge these connections? Well, it's absolutely crucial. 21st century Britain is a vibrant country. It's a country that had gone through many things, trauma, victories, collective actions and, and many things. And, and I think as such, it has to look at all aspects of its own history that the ugliness of it needs to to be taught as well as, as the beauty of it, the beauty being contemporary Britain and multicultural Britain. So I think it's really important to teach it because every part of Britain, every person uh, of, you know, who's inhabitant, who's, who's living here, feels part of a, a story. If your story is not taught or is not recognized, then your story, your history is, is erased. And we know that one of the legacies of the past is racism, hierarchy uh, amongst human beings, and those some valued more than others. 
And that has not been explained when you erase that part of history, or, or at least you explain the roots or the root causes of these things. Do we need to reconsider then how Britain's imperial past is commemorated? We need to think of it in a new way, I presume. What would be your solution to that? My solution is, as a historian, is to teach all aspects. So commemoration, you know, so far it's been a celebration. We have seen Britain commemorating the past, uh, usually 25th of March, for the abolition of the slave trade and slavery. But the problem is that we commemorate once a year, which is fine, but that commemoration is not necessarily a national commemoration. It doesn't have any strength in it. It's not taken on board by the very top civil servant. And I have seen in, in different countries how it is the president or the prime minister who leads the commemoration. In Britain, that's not the case. So what would you like to see then? I would like to see the commemoration happening in a kind of uh, recognition of the past. But more importantly for me, commemoration are just one aspect. We know the result of the legacies of the past, which are social and racial inequality. And these need to be tackled as a matter of urgency. We think we're doing it, but we're not really doing it properly and we're doing it partially only during Black History Month. So it needs to be outside Black History Month and we need to work towards social and economic equality as well. Would you like to see a national day of commemoration and remembering of Britain's role in the slave trade, perhaps the dates that would coincide with the abolition? Well, there is a day. There is a day that is the uh, 23rd of of August, which is the revolution of Saint-Domingue nowadays Haiti and it's been commemorated by the mayor of London Sadiq Khan very recently and throughout the country you have that commemoration taking place but it's often the case as if you know you have minority ethnic groups commemorating the date but that date not being necessarily commemorated by the rest of the country and yet it's a UN date a, a date chosen by the UN to remember the slave trade but it's not a big deal as far as Britain is concerned nationally if you would. It's not taken on board by the state. Yeah, that's interesting. It's not on the same level as the armistice. No. That's food for thought, isn't it, I think? Yes, it is. And Um, that's another inequality there. Yes, it is, because if you don't have a spotlight on on these kind of commemoration, many people would know. And therefore, the education op, uh, you know, educational opportunities is lost. Many young learners, students would benefit from knowing what it means, you know, yeah. Mm. The next question I think I know the answer to, but do you think Britain's involvement in the slave trade is discussed enough? No, <laughs> no, not at all. The way it's discussed, it's, it's just disappointing. It's they were men of their time versus it was the exploitation of black people. There's very rarely complexity injected into that trade where you go deep into what happened, how they did it, what was done, what are areas of commonality, what was the system like, because it was a system. We often shine the light on a few traders, but it was a whole system. They were involved in in an economy. 
So I would like to see more nuance and more complexity. Well, it's not really complex, actually. More nuances and, 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 and uh, the story being taught in a comprehensive way and placed within the long history of colonization and European colonization, because Britain did not act in isolation at all. Yes, it's, it's definitely not a two-dimensional subject by any stretch of the imagination. When we think of the recent developments, we think of the Black Lives Matter movement. How important do you think that has been in putting the history of the transatlantic slave trade in the spotlight? It's been dramatically important, tragically important. It it took the death of African-Americans for Britain and the rest of the world, really, to kind of have a a wake-up call and even then that wake-up call is turning into something else where you know the question of if you use the term black lives matter it becomes problematic whereas the discussion should not be about this the discussion should be about the root cause which is violence they're talking about police violence and that police violence has a long history it started in the 18th century mostly it started with the policing of black bodies in the Caribbean, in the Americas, in Africa, and then in European settings. And we have texts, we have documents, and we have laws being put in place by several Europeans to police those bodies. So it would be important to really, really look at that. That's, in that sense, the movement is incredibly important because it opened the door to a dialogue. Well, why is it important to understand and discuss Britain's role in the slave trade today? I think we need to do this for present and future generations. We need to do this. It's, it's a matter of urgency because there are parts of the community, of communities in this land who feel isolated, discriminated against. There is a legacy of inequality, not just social inequality and poverty. These are, of course, embedded, but there's a kind of link between the past and what happens today in the way certain communities are perceived and viewed. They call it, well, that is called, you know, prejudice. Before meeting people, a lot of people are prejudiced because they haven't been taught something else. Mm. They haven't been taught that, you know, what happened and why they may have these views. They just know they they just have them and they're convinced that they come, these are coming from themselves. Whereas it's actually a result of, of an educational program that have that does not work. And regarding these properties that English Heritage and other bodies have in their possession, how important is it for those places to be markers of and storytelling conduits of the slave trade? Well, I think that you can transform a space from a space of, of trauma and erasure to a space of education and conversation and controversy, if you would, but I think that English heritage and certain, at least certain stately homes have done that job of actually uncovering and bravely presenting those stories. And that is incredibly, incredibly important. The idea, though, is that these places are still lo- seen as being exclusive. So there's another piece of the work that needs to be done to encourage some communities to actually come and talk and envisage those places as their own because some of their ancestors actually contributed to to building these things forcefully, but they contributed. So these spaces are also their spaces. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. 
You can read more from Olivette in the Members magazine or in her new book, African Europeans and Untold History, which is out on the 29th of October. Next week, we're back in first century Britannia, investigating Chester's cavalry fort on Hadrian's Wall. In 1801, workmen discovered the strong room and the wooden door was still intact. Thanks for listening. See you next time.